electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. begins with breaking news. The selling rages on in another milestone moment for your money. The Dow dropping a thousand points or 4% in a wild session for stocks. Incredibly, this is the second thousand point drop this week. It is the worst week now since October of 2008, right at the heart of the financial crisis. The Dow now down 10% from its highs, but Wall Street calls a correction. The S&P 500 also in a correction. The Dow, S&P, and NASDAQ all now negative for 2018. Thank you for being with us tonight, everybody. And let us begin now with Guy Adami, because Guy, after a week of reckoning for stocks, we're left with a really hard question. Is this a healthy run-of-the-mill correction or the start of something bigger, perhaps a bear market? Because I can say that 1,000-point drops have really never happened in the market unless we've had a serious, We've never serious been this issue. high. To Tim's point, and you know this, so I mean, yes, at 27,000 in the Dow, 1,000 points is obviously a lot different than at 15,000 in the Dow. And it, obviously it creates headlines because the number, th it's a significant number. For context, though, the levels we are now in the S&P and the Dow Jones is basically where we were in Thanksgiving. And in Thanksgiving, everybody's talking about how great the market was. Number one, I'm not dismissing what's going on. What I think is happening here, clearly what everybody said, Volatility has taken over. Stocks have become collateral damage to volatility. Well, this will be over, in my opinion, when you see headlines about a hedge fund and or some bank's derivative book blowing up. I have not seen that yet. When you start to see those headlines, I think that's when we're in the ninth inning. Yes, and I understand, Tim Seymour, that we deal in percentages, not numbers. And as the numbers get bigger, they get bigger, if right. you know what I mean. I, However, I I this, this is the, and I believe, and if we're not first, we're second, the fastest move into a correction in the Dow's history. The well, speed, doesn't that worry you? I, I don't have my history book out, but yes. And, and, and I don't think Guy's being sanguine in any way. In fact, I think he was pointing out that, that I think there are a lot of factors at work here. To me, what troubled me on Monday, Tuesday, was that people want to put this in a tight little box and say that this was just about reverse fixed funds. There's no way this is about reverse fixed funds. And when people also say that the technicals in the market are, are what have changed, not fundamentals, you can't tell me that if the technicals have changed, that fundamentals haven't changed because the technicals are volatility. And then this gets into our volatility conversation, which I think, excuse me, once vol has changed so much, equities are a very different investment. And whether that's temporary or not, that's the environment we live in, and it does affect equity valuations. I think this VIX change is clearly, it's very, very dramatic, but I really do think it's going to be somewhat short-lived. I think, to Guy's point, if there is some derivative book or many derivative books that are really in the process of unwinding, that, that will be interesting. But when we've seen over the last 20 years, probably, spikes in the volatility like this, they come down. They go up super quickly, and they come down very quickly as well. And I think that we're going to see that here. And I think you are much more likely to have a 1,000 down 1,000 day 
near the time you had another down 1,000 day, that those two things are more likely to happen together than they are to yeah, happen but separately. I, I would just say what's different over this last 20-year period, when you think about the top that happened in, the, in Q1, Q2 of 2000, and then in Q3, Q4 of 2007, the volatility clearly picked up, and it picked up at highs. And it also picked up at highs when interest rates were much, much higher than they are now. So if interest rates are the reason why we're seeing the volatility at an all-time high, up more than 200% from the 2009 low, and interest rates are as low as they are, then we got a real problem if this thing starts to snowball. Well, because and I'm, not, and I'm it, not trying to make it sound like we are at the precipice of a crash, but I remember those two tops very clearly, and there were periods of euphoria that went very, right up into them. Levered, 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 like yeah, nothing related to... Yeah, we have actually to, still a lot of leverage. Look, and we have interest rates in fact, historically low. Wait, wait, wait. So look we're at much the financial system now but, but compared the, to 2007 Karen, in terms of all leverage. All that corporate debt volatility. has been transferred to sovereigns. Okay, so it's actually more dangerous, in my opinion. Well, so when the thing finally blows up, it's going to make 2000 and 2008 look like a walk in the park. And don't forget this, is that the, 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 the bear market that we lived in in 00 didn't end until March 2003. Okay, can I, can I walk you down a little bit? Because I kind of agree with you, but I don't think I agree with this is going to look like 08 a walk in the park, because that, that, was, that was nightmare on Elm Street. But, but ultimately, we have a case here where... The ECB hasn't even made a move. The Bund went through 80 basis points today. The ECB is the one that's further behind the curve, and they're the ones that, when they start taking their rates higher, Draghi has said nothing about tightening yet. And when they do, our rates are going a lot higher. So the reality is that we have the biggest central bank experiment ever, and we don't know how it's going to play out. And that's why people getting sanguine and saying, putting it in a nice box, without trying to scare everybody, the reality is there's more liquidity squashing around there than we've ever that's right. seen. That's what makes this time different, which is interesting. 15 to 20 trillion on central bank balance sheets, which we've never had before. We've also haven't seen this kind of a market in years. You've got a lot of people that are financial advisors who've never operated, Guy, in a rising interest rate environment. Literally, the last one we had, they would have been in college or maybe getting their MBA. They've never managed money in this period. And we're seeing, forget the numbers, we're seeing the Dow move 2% in 20 minutes. And I'd add on top of that the passive investing, which it's a whole different conversation, but these robo-advisors as well. Robo-advising is great on the way up, but on the way down, I don't know how it's going to work because, quite frankly, nobody knows how it's going to work because this hasn't happened yet. I'll add one more little thing to this equation. Again, I believe, correctly or incorrectly, that all consumer confidence is is an overlay of the Dow Jones Industrial Average. Say I'm crazy, say I'm not, but the two basically trade hand in hand. At what point does consumer confidence take a dip down? And at what point does consumer pull back on spending? As you know, our economy is 72% driven by the consumer. So if the consumer starts to ease back on the back of the stock market move, then you have something that starts to tumble on itself. And meanwhile, the consumer's never had it better. And, and, and Never. But, but let's, think, let's think about what's put us in this situation. We did three-tenths of a, of a percent gain in wages in the last payroll number. We've got corporations that are passing tax, cu tax cuts through to their workers, which is a great thing. In <laughs> fact, if anything, that front loads a lot of this dis disposable consumption story. So um, to, to think that central banks, first of all, can control the bond curve, we know the Fed cannot control the curve. It controls the Fed, ultimately. So um, to say that this can be an orderly move in interest rates, too, I don't, I don't want to scare anybody. All I'm telling you is we still have Netflix up 30% this year. NVIDIA, great numbers 
and deservedly should be well, up fundamentals this year. don't matter but, right now. But, well, they don't matter at but, all. But my, so my point is, getting back to technicals, then is that you have a lot of stocks that still haven't moved anywhere near oh, where they, they could move. They do matter. I mean, look, look this week in general when you saw I, I, every day this week, I saw Google, I saw Facebook, I saw Apple down two percent at one point. And did you see Snap up 40% yesterday? Did you see Twitter up 20% at one point today? A lot of short I saw covering, Dan, well, you know that. Well, I understand, but they're buying it for a reason. I mean, there, there was a fundamental input. There was a fundamental input that got people to start selling Apple and Google last week. So to me, I think fundamentals are very important, okay? And Kramer's been saying this all week, and you guys should listen to him because it's true, okay? But at the end of the day, if we have correlations, the way Who's they work on the way up. Important, though. I mean, I think, you know, I'd actually like to agree with that and say, I'm hearing too much that this is all about technicals when I don't think it is all about technicals. I think fundamentals are changing before people's eyes. But Let's, in a period like this, we're going to start to see some dispersion, is my point. Okay, You're going to start seeing companies rewarded right, for good valuations, good fundamentals, that sort of thing. It's going to be separated from what's going on in the market. You're going to see relative strength. Those are the names that you go after in my opinion, on the long side. You know, you know, Tim, you said it's impossible or whatever you said at the beginning that, it, that this is caused by this short volatility product. People no, talking, I don't think it was. Okay, well, the, a lot of people I know I think are would disagree 100% with that. Yes, Barclays, I do too. Put, Barclays put out a note two, two days ago saying they thought $200 billion in stock could be sold over the next couple of days to pay for the continued unwinding of this volatility trade. Is it possible... Improbable, but possible that this whole thing is being caused by a couple of idiots in a dark corner of the stock no market. No way. A couple idiots, like two, probably not. No Has way. to be much broader than that. But I think could it cause the whole thing? No, but I think it could contribute significantly. And so this reaction, I think that you know, you throw a rock into the water and it ripples a lot, and then it calms down. And I think that calm, those fundamentals, I think it really does matter. Today, for example, I yeah. bought some Intel. They had great fundamentals, Dan, two weeks ago. I know you think some of their techs didn't have great fundamentals. They did. I know. And, you know, I nobody bought it cares the other today. Day. I bought okay. it at 44. I mean, so to me, it was, trading, is- it was trading above 50 after they reported a great Q4. Right. And, I bought and it's 43 and change today. And after NVIDIA had good numbers, stocks up after hours, but you might be able to say the stock should be up 10%, not 6%, well, or whatever it is. So what she's saying is you're going to have to look beyond this period because we may remain volatile. We may be volatile and be higher from here. We may be lower, who knows, but you still have to put money to work. Right. And, and, well, so and I agree we, with that, too. But you don't have to put it to work tomorrow. And we may be putting money to work in a higher volatility environment for a substantial period of time, also with a higher interest rate environment for a substantial period of time, which changes equity valuations. Just to be let's, clear. Let's continue the conversation, but broaden it out because your next guest not only called this pullback, but also really provided a game plan for what to do when it strikes. Listen. Okay, so here's what you do. If you're way overweight and levered into equities, cut back to a neutral position. If you're way overweight, the more aggressive and high cyclical areas, maybe you neutralize for a little bit. When the market does come in, and that shows you, it's coming in. This, now it's coming in. I really believe it's coming in. Then you can add into it versus you can re-lever into it and get aggressive into it versus chasing it here. All right, let's bring in Tony Dwyer, Chief Market Strategist, Canaccord Genuity. You know, I got to apologize, Tony, because I feel like <laughs> as part of the media, seriously, we're looking for blame in this. And I think right now it's past the point of trying to figure out what's happened and more to the point of when does it stop and what do we do? Do you see any kind of a, I mean, when we're losing 400 points in the last 30 minutes of trading end on our lows of the day, it tells me tomorrow may not be the end. What are you seeing? I think that has something to do with market structure. But let's let's talk about what you guys were talking about earlier. Is it the ETNs? Is it the volatility trade? That was the gun. But you need somebody to shoot the gun. 
to shoot the gun, you needed record low volatility for a record long period of time. So it was an easy trade in human nature. This is a human nature game, even if software programs are kicking it in. So what you had was way too optimistic of a view. Remember what they what's not in that quote is you were down to 12 percent newsletter writers being bearish. When that's happened in the past, guess what happens? What happened? What, and, and when you get that kind of bullishness with that kind of low volatility and sentiment, that's just not the a good market thing. became an annuity. And, and so what the trigger is, yes, you have higher rates. I've got two times this cycle, 2014, 2016, where you had Inflation break-evens higher and trending higher, and interest rates higher and trending higher as well. So sure, we're, we may be in a new interest rate regime, but this was a combination of human nature. They came together, and I believe, Brian, that this gives investors an opportunity. We have a steep yield curve. We have um, earnings per share that just keep going up. And it's like one of those things, the data that I can find, just to, to give perspective to the, to the viewers, I went back and I looked at times where you had a 10-day a rate of change on the S&P 500. In other words, what did it do for the last 10 days? Right? Let's forget about opinion and go with the data. The only times that you've had such a significant rate of change downward in 10 days were 1987, 1997, 1998, 2000, 2002, 2011, 2015 low, 2016 low, today. Okay, so what do you want to do? I'm promising you it's going to stay more volatile. That's the history of it. But when you look out two, three, 12 months, we're going to be up. Until you invert the curve, shut down credit totally, not because the equity market's down, but totally shut down credit, we're going higher. Yeah, so Tony, one of the things you said, and you spot on, without question, one of the things you've said is this, this will end badly, and your time horizon for it has typically been anywhere from 18 months to 24 months. Is there any chance that whatever's happening here that we all sort of have different disagreements on is systemic and this end badly? Are we, are we potentially seeing that now or is that way too early to tell? I think that we made a top. Clearly we made a top. It, that's, not, that's an idiot statement. Of course we made a top. We're down 10% in a week. The top guy only comes with an inversion of the yield curve and a recession-driven, uh, a credit-driven recession. We're still, because the yield curve's actually steepened, we're still probably maybe 9 to 12 months from that. And then from there, you go 15 to 24 months before you go into a recession. So, again, I think this is one of those times where I hate to, to be on set and kind of sound like it's no big deal. It's a big deal. People are losing money. It's down 10 percent a week. That is an opportunity as long as you stay with the game plan. And the game plan, as was highlighted in the outline, is you wait for a correction, you buy those areas that, have, that do well here, in this environment. Tony agreed, but, but from a valuation perspective, higher rates and a falling dollar make the dollar of earnings worth less, do they not? Our, the call I've had on the desk, the call I've had with the clients, and the call I'm going to make right now is the, the dollar moves relative to global growth expectations, not interest rates. That gets arved out. Tim's been on this a lot. He knows this trade. I neutralized my dollar view. I was negative dollar over a year ago. Tim and I, when that happened, um, were a couple of the only... Now everybody's negative dollar. Guess what? When you have global synchronized easing, that's global growth friendly. The dollar's going to weaken. When you have global synchronized monetary tightening... Guess what's going to happen? You're going to slow down global growth, and you're going to eventually hit emer emerging currencies. So I'm neutral dollar, neutral EM over DM, neutral DM over U.S. I think just right now, in the, in, as we're transitioning, you want to be neutralized, all those things, 
stay in the U.S. and have a solid exposure in the financial, industrials, and infotech space. Tony Dwyer, always a pleasure to get your views. Thank you very much. Thank you very Thanks, much buddy. for having me. Thanks for making me give that statement, Tim. You're the one that I pressed me into that. Come on. Come on. <laughs> That's enough that of that, good. Tony. That's no the last time. Karen, do we, do we, it's hard to – Tony made great points. Yes. When you're at home and you see the Dow down 2,000 points in a week or more, it's hard to stay the course. Right. What's your advice? Mine is absolutely not only to stay the course, to the extent that you have – any cash that you've been waiting for something to happen to use, which t kudos to Tony for an outstanding call a couple times, uh, I would be putting that to work right now. I, it's, it's interesting that our emotions, I think, tell us to do the opposite of what we should do. So stay the course. Yeah, and I, I, I agree with most of that. Uh, I, I agree that I don't think you have to do a whole lot here, frankly, and I do think this is setting up for an interesting buy opportunity. I would be more cautious on my timing, or I just want to see a little more dust settle. I think there's a lot of moving parts here, which includes also, you know, high yield's been breaking down over the last couple of days. There's some other places where you're seeing some conditions tighten, and the dollar hasn't started to move. So just in terms of, I, you can't time any of this, and no one's going to ring a bell. We're never going to try to do that here. Um, so if anything, I'd border on doing less than more, but I think there's a lot of moving pieces that I don't need to chase I, tomorrow. I think it's important. I don't think you buy closes like today. I think what you want to do is buy a down opening after a day like today and get some sort of reversal, and that should make you feel better about it. And so I think what both of you guys said, you know, it all makes a lot of sense. The only thing I would take issue is with, like, listen, if you're long and you haven't sold anything, now the, the S&P or the Dow is down 10%, it doesn't actually mean you have to buy anything. I mean, like at the end of the day, because who knows where that capitulation comes. To my eye, the S&P looks like it's sure as heck going to 2,500, and really huge support is down at 2,400, and that's where I want to like really reload okay. pretty hard. All right, good stuff there. Listen, for more on the markets, be sure to I'll stay tuned here. But tonight, tune in to CNBC's special report, The Markets in Turmoil. A few of us will be there at 7 o'clock Eastern time. All right, coming up on this program, if you're worried about bonds taking down your portfolio, do not panic. You shouldn't panic anyway. Well, we've got you covered because Greg Davis, the Chief Investment Officer for Bonds at Vanguard, will be here to break down the do's and the don'ts. Plus, amid the market chaos, Apple is doing something that has Karen Feinerman buying it for the first time ever. Will that convince Whoa. you to buy the stock? Stick around to find out. Later on, we are obviously all over the after-hours action as well. NVIDIA reporting their numbers. That yeah. stock up a number of percent. We'll give you more and get you details from the call. Much more Fast Money. Straight ahead. All right, welcome back. And welcome to our friends in Asia and Europe, because we are simulcasting CNBC around the globe tonight, especially given the market route. So welcome. Let's focus now on a stock that is certainly known around the globe, and that is Apple. Now, Apple stood strong much of the day, but succumbed to selling later on. Apple also in a technical correction, down 14% from its 52-week high. And something at Karen Feinerman, hitting the buy button on the stock today for the first time ever. Karen, give us your fast pitch on Apple. Yes, this is why I bought Apple. As always, for me, valuation is really, really important, and it's the top of my list right here. So the valuation, if we include that repatriation, gets a P.E. multiple for this company that is so dramatically below the S&P multiple. I think it should be somewhat, but not a discount of over 40 percent to the S&P multiple. So that is really significant to me, to buy a company with earnings like they have. I realize they could be lumpy, but that discount just seems excessive to me. The second thing that I like is that expectations for the X have been 
tampered, and that's good. We like when expectations are low. It's easier for them to meet them or surpass them. And the third thing that I thought was really interesting was the services revenue, which is nice high margin revenue. They've actually done a better job than I thought. Apple Music, I've been impressed with the competition that they've set out with Spotify. They're actually overtaking Spotify. That's been a very impressive growth driver for them. So I think we'll continue to see more of that. And then let's just take a look at the chart real quick. So the last six months, it has retraced here all of the, all of the, anything past November. So all of that benefit of tax reform is gone from Apple. And this is going to be a very significant driver for them. So putting all of that together, significant sell-off, I think it's time to buy Apple. Karen. <clears throat> yes, Tim. Excuse me. Um, what do you think is more important, margins uh, or for these guys the top line? Because I think people are very divided on the company. I th well, obviously both. To me, I kind of like margins better. That's more important. I also like recurring revenue better. That's more important to me. So that's what I'd be hoping for and I think would drive the stock. Karen, on the margin front, um, this was something that was kind of evident. Obviously, they had great margins, but that margin is at the expense of their customers. We just had this uh, conversation about consumer discretionary spending. Did this company just ratchet up the price of their phone dramatically at a time, or, or one of their phones, at a time where maybe consumer discretionary spending has just topped out? And does that worry you as far as margins are concerned? Well, I know it's worried you for a long time, and you've had a good call on, on the, the iPhone X expectations being too high. As I said, I think they're lower now. But I think the consumer is in good shape. So I'm not overly concerned about that, at least at this valuation I'm not. All right, no more questions. It is now time to vote. Are you buying Karen's pitch on Apple? Who are you asking? You? So we, we oh, why are you? We Everybody. We ended it. I'll just, go first. I'm just Can you everybody. start out? I'm, I'm like, going to go you. first, and I'm going to say I'm with her. And the reason why I say that is everybody wants to own Apple on a pullback. Well, you know, the market's provided you with a 14% pullback this time. We've seen that historically. Can it go down another few dollars? Absolutely. But is this a level where you should dip your toe? I'm with her, as, as my placard said. Dan? Uh, I'm with her just a little lower, and I think the most important point that she made is about the cash and what they're going to do with it. On their call last week, they said that they are going to get to cash neutral versus their debt. That's $165 billion that they're going to return to shareholders. So if you see this stock below 150, that is where I'm a buyer, but she's probably right. She's good. And I'm also a buyer, like Dan, a little bit lower. I have a 140 on there. I think it's a good level for the stock. Maybe you put on a half here. These guys have more flexibility in the capital markets. I think they benefit as much as anybody on this tax deal. I think they're going to be doing a lot more for investors. All right. So, folks, does Karen's pitch have you buying Apple stock? You can log on to Twitter at CNBC Fast Money and vote in our poll. In the meantime, here's what else is coming up on Fast. This is your portfolio. This is the market. And this is what's happening to your money. And we'll show you how to protect it for close to nothing. Plus, how are some hedge funds beating the market? What is a Bitcoin? Bingo. And we'll talk to one of the biggest Bitcoin hedge fund managers in a rare interview when Fast Money returns. All right, the market's biggest villain is back. That is bonds. Treasury bonds. U.S. 10-year yield breaking out to new highs, again hitting 2.8%, the highest level since 2014. This, of course, causing a lot of pain for investors who own bond funds, which may also be wreaking some havoc in stocks. Let's get down to Bob Bassani at the New York Stock Exchange for details. Hey, Bob. 
Bond villain, I like that. Bond yields are starting to become a headache for the stock market, Brian. The original trigger behind the sell-off was Friday's jobs report. Higher wage growth led to a spike in bond yields, and that spooked the stock market. Now, that makes a little bit of sense, but with all the market volatility, bonds became a safe haven play on Monday, and that pushed yields down. But <laughs> that didn't last long. Tuesday and Wednesday, yields started rising again and into today. But yields fell back as market selling picked up again in the middle of the day today, and that's that safe haven play coming into play. A prolonged spike in yields may lead finally to this long-awaited sell-off in bond funds. We've been waiting for this one for five years, but it hasn't happened, at least not yet. So even with the latest market volatility, bond flows for U.S. funds have been positive, believe it or not, for the first five trading days of February, and they're only slightly negative for international funds. None of these numbers you're looking at are statistically significant, by the way, not big flows either way. It's the stock market that holds the key to bond market flows. If the market volatility continues in stocks, bonds may well see big inflows as a safe haven play. As for stock funds, there have been modest outflows in the first five trading days of January, about $22 billion. Now, that's about a half a percent of all the assets under management in ETFs. Again, that's not much at all, not statistically significant. Interestingly, most of the outflows have been in the biggest ETF of all. That's the Spider S&P 500, or SPY. This is the ETF most commonly used by institutional traders to get in and out of the market quickly. That tells me, indeed, much of the selling is institutional. Now, if the volatility continues, we will certainly see retail traders selling their ETFs, particularly those who pumped the record $70 billion into ETFs in January. And, Brian, I estimated that the average S&P price is about 100 points, at least 100 points above where we are right now. So a lot of people are 4 or 5% at least underwater who bought S&Ps this year. Back to you. All right, Bob Pisani, great stuff as always. Thank you. So if you have any questions or concerns about the bond market, you are in luck because Greg Davis is the head of the world's largest bond fund. He is Vanguard's chief investment officer, and he joins us now from Pennsylvania with some key advice. Uh, Greg, before we get to the advice part, question part, which is this, uh, does the market route for equities, I know you're a bond guy primarily, but does the market route for stocks mean the Fed is less likely to raise rates three or even four times this year? We're expecting the Fed to raise rates three times this year, it, it, but it really depends on what happens with financial conditions and how the economy evolves over the course of the next several months. But right now, I think the Fed is still on its targeted path of doing about three rate hikes this year. Okay, the stock market is not the economy. It may be a small report card, but it is not the whole thing. Do you think that this market slide changes the calculus of the economy, weakens a strong economy that could then change the Fed's thinking? You know, I think, I think we really have to keep it all in perspective, right? We're down three and a half, three and three quarter percent year to date. And the S&P is back to levels we saw around November 20th of 2017. So, you know, in the grand scheme of things, the market got overheated. The market got too far ahead. Valuations were a bit stretched. So it's natural to see a bit of a pullback in an environment where you saw Treasury yields rise from 2.4 percent at the beginning of the year to the 280, 285, 285 level. So, you know, this bit of a downturn in the equity markets, uh, you know, should be uh, should be a bit expected, given what we've seen in, in, in the bond market. It's Karen. Let me ask you something. Where do you want to be in the curve? Where do you think the most risk is? You know, I think w when it comes to when it comes to positioning, you know, when you think about when you think about where there's risk, I mean, clearly the Fed has 
um, you know, communicated they're you know, on track to do three rate hikes this year. And that's pretty much being priced into the market. So unless there's some substantial deviation uh, from what, what's already being priced in, you're going to be pretty much neutral in the short end of the curve. The question mark becomes what happens with inflation. If inflation expectations really start to pick up, that's where the long end of the curve would actually be at risk. And so, again, when we're looking at where 10 years are right now, if the economy continues to do well, labor, labor market conditions continue to tighten and we see, um, you know, the levels of earnings rise, you know, you could see uh, a bit of an increase uh, continue in the, uh, in the 10-year part of the curve, which, um, you know, we've seen so far year to date. Greg, a lot of people watching tonight have, have bond funds. They're in their bond funds. They're going to open up their statements. They're going to see their bond funds are, are being disrupted, to say the least. Any words of wisdom for the guys and gals watching at home? Yeah, I think, I think investors, we think investors really need to take it in perspective, right? You should never drive your investment decision based upon what's happened over the course of a week or two. In the grand scheme of things, if you have rising rates, for most long-term investors, if they're reinvesting those coupon payments and those principal payments over time, they're better off in a rising yield environment in the long run, provided they're not in long-dated bond funds that, uh, and they don't have the long-term time horizon. But for most investors, uh, you know, slightly you know, rising yield is actually a good thing for them. Greg, we're asking you to be jack-of-all-trades. High yield, it, it seems to be breaking down, and yet credit shouldn't be doing poorly in a growing economy still with relatively low rates. And uh, agreed, but I think the, the, risk you have there, the risk you have there is that, again, high yield tends to be highly correlated with what's happening in the equity market, and it's just a sign that you have the risk-off trade that's really happening in the broader market. So we've seen high-yield CDX widen about 55 basis points or so, mm -hmm. uh, you know, year-to-date, but investment-grade spreads have only widened by about 11 basis points when you look at IG CDX. So, you know, the investment-grade market has held in relatively well, but, again, the high-yield market is highly, highly correlated with what happens in the broader equity markets. Greg, it was a pleasure to have you on. Thanks for bringing a little calm to the market. Appreciate Absolutely. it. Thank you. Great to be on with you. All right, take care. All right, guys, what, do you, what, what, what are we thinking here? Well, first of all, I mean, he, he is a, that, that is a calm cool beacon of, of, of light in the storm. That's good because so they manage, like, what, a couple trillion bucks? So yeah, it's, that's no, what you these, want. Look, these guys know what they're doing. I, I think it's interesting to hear him say that he does think that the 10-year yield could go higher if we continue to continue at these, at these uh, trends in the market, which is going to scare people more. What do you, what do you, Guy, do you think that the Fed could change its thinking on rates if the stock, if the, everything else stays the same? The economic indicators are good, unemployment continues to tick down, inflation's somewhat in control, but the equity market slides. Does the Fed change its view on rates? You asked that question, and we had that conversation with Steve Leesman the other day. He said the Fed absolutely will keep their eye on the equity market, and my pushback would be why. It shouldn't be really in their purview, but he says it's part of the equation now. I'm paraphrasing. I don't think they should, and this is my opinion. The problem the Federal Reserve's going to have this year is I think they should hike four times based on all the data we've seen. If they don't, because the market's going lower, the market's not going to like that this time. Mm. It has in the past. In this environment, the market will say, wait a second, what do you see that we don't see? And I think so in both scenarios, you could make a market negative outcome. All right. Still ahead, all this volatility may have you wondering how you can protect your money. Well, don't worry, Dan has a way you can do it for close to nothing. He's going to show that to you a bit later on in the show. Plus, what is the only thing crazier than the stock market right now? Well, it's got to be crypto. But one fund manager says the bottom is in, and you may want to listen to him because his crypto fund up 16,000% in four years. He'll tell you what is in the secret sauce when Fast Money returns.
All right, welcome back to Fast Money. Bitcoin crawling back above 8,000 today. And despite some of the recent crypto carnage, one industry is still betting big on the space, and that is hedge funds. Leslie Picker breaking it down for us back at CNBC HQ at the crypto desk. Leslie. Hey, Brian, that's right. Crypto funds were a bright spot in the struggling hedge fund industry last year. And then, of course, the crypto sell-off took hold. So as cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin plunged in January, so too did many of the hedge funds that trade these things. New numbers out from HFR show that cryptocurrency funds declined 9.22% during the month. That compares with the broader hedge fund industry, which was up 2.82%, and the S&P 500, which gained 5.7%. So this is a 180 from last year with crypto funds collecting more than $2 billion in assets under management and posting average performance of about 3,000%. By comparison, the best performing hedge fund we track gained a mere 77% last year. So is this still the alpha generating strategy that investors were clamoring for last year? Well, for one, crypto hedge funds need to be able to hedge or bet on the digital assets declines as well while still generating those, those outsized returns. One fund is showing that it's actually possible to outperform even when Bitcoin slumps. Now take a look at this chart of Pantera Capital's digital asset fund up 140% net of fees while Bitcoin traded lower. The firm's Bitcoin fund has returned a whopping 25,000% since it launched in 2013, and its ICO fund has returned 549% since July of last year. In fact, Pantera has become such a large player in ICOs that it's had to actually raise fees. You hear this hedge fund, guys? Raise fees to 2% management, 40% performance in order to reduce inflows, Brian. That sounds like one of them good problems, Leslie. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you. Thank well, you. speaking of the aforementioned Pantera, the fund, not the band, let's bring in its founder and CEO, Dan Moorhead. He used to work for hedge fund legend Paul Tudor Jones. And you got some pretty heady numbers there, Dan. And by the way, also, back, I think it was on mid-December, you said that Bitcoin could fall 50%. Well, guess what? You're almost exactly right. That's about what it's down from its high. So what's your strategy now? Yeah, we're um, certainly aware it's a very speculative market and it's, it's volatile on the upside, it can be volatile on the downside. But we've had a 64% fall from its peak uh, to the trough a couple of days ago, and that's actually exactly the average decline in the Bitcoin market over the last seven bear market cycles. So the past doesn't predict the future, but it seems like this is about the right um, downdraft. The other uh, stat to note is it typically has had an, on average a 71 day bear market and we're 52 days into this. So it seems like another couple of weeks and everything be kind of normal and it can start grinding Do you, back up. Why? What's, why in a couple of weeks? What's going to normalize about this market then? Well, I think the fundamentals are, are fantastic and, and we can go over those uh, separately. But there is such an institutional appetite to get exposure to this. It's a half a trillion dollar asset class that nobody owns. That's a pretty wild um, uh, circumstance. And it's also got a 0.1% correlation to the rest of the financial markets. Um, Greg, in the last segment, was talking about risk on, risk off. Almost everything else in the world is highly, highly correlated, either close to plus one or, or negative one. And Bitcoin is still so under-owned by institutional investors that it trades kind of to its own, uh, its own beat. 
Dan, it's Karen. Let me ask you something. How do you think about potential pending regulation? Is that a good thing, a bad thing for the space? What do you think? It's a good thing. I think the U.S. regulatory bodies have done an excellent job. <laughs> the IRS ruled on Bitcoin uh, many years ago that it was property, and so you get long-term capital gains tax treatment if you hold it for a year. The CFTC has been very uh, progressive about this, and, and now we have CME uh, futures on Bitcoin. And the SEC's ruled a few things uh, are securities and should be registered, but in general has allowed the market to develop. So uh, a, the pace so far has been very good from the regulatory bodies, and a little more regulation is probably helpful. Hey, Dan, you know, you just mentioned futures being listed in uh, early December. I mean, has that changed the game a bit? Has it made it easier for you to accept uh, capital inflows and expand your capital base and put it to work? Yeah, I think the futures are a very, very small part of the industry, and it's much like the fiat currency markets. It's almost all exclusively uh, cash trading and not much in futures. Hey, Dan, it, it's very interesting when you think about what's been developing on the platforms. I'm curious, what part of the whole crypto, is it the tokens or is it the platforms themselves and the developers on those platforms that gives you the most interest right now? Yeah, so the big currencies are interesting to trade, and our long-short hedge fund does trade Bitcoin, Ethereum, all the big ones. But for my mind, the most interesting bit are these new protocol tokens, ICOs as they're called, because they're kind of like the small caps of the industry. All right, well, the window just shut down. Uh, Dan, it was a pleasure. Thank you very much, Dan Moorhead of Pantera Capital. Uh, those are not some bad numbers, guys. It's unbelievable. <laughs> I mean, I mean they're, they're, they're stunning, to be honest with you. Um, well, and these guys were early advocates. To his credit, I mean, that's 2013. You know, if you see the, the admin of that fund, this isn't a guy that just jumped in lately. I mean, it's a, it's a fund that's a very well-known hedge fund that made a commitment to this a long time ago. Kudos. Four and a half years old is now a long time ago in crypto. It's, it's, it's a lifetime. I, I guess that's where we are. Anybody here? I mean, do, do they agree, disagree that things are going to calm down from here? I, I think what Karen asked him about the regu regulation, when you hear guys like that who are accepting capital, charging two and 40, that they think that this is a asset class that they can grow, you know, to a $10 billion fund. I think they believe that regulation is actually their friend. It kind of helps them kind of tell their story to investors. So to me, BK has been saying this for a long time. There's a wall of institutional money coming and that guy's there and he's willing to take it from you. All right, coming up, check out NVIDIA soaring in the after hour session, the conference call underway. And you won't believe what the CEO or CFO just said about crypto. Going to bring you those comments. Plus, can't take the heat? Don't worry. We've got a way to protect your portfolio for close to nothing. We'll tell you how to do that when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. We have an earnings alert on NVIDIA. It is surging in the after hours. Let's get out of Josh Lipton in San Francisco. More Josh. Brian, on the call, NVIDIA executives talking about cryptocurrencies, the impact of that on their business. Here's the CFO. Take a listen. Strong demand in the cryptocurrency market exceeded our expectations. We met some of this demand with a dedicated board in our OEM business. While the overall contribution of cryptocurrency to our business remains difficult to quantify, we believe it was a higher percentage of revenue than the prior quarter. That said, our main focus remains on our core gaming market. 
Now, Brian, as for that gaming business, $1.7 billion in the quarter. That was up about 30% driven by titles. They called out uh, Call of Duty, Star Wars, eSports also, and demand for Nintendo Switch and, of course, cryptocurrencies. Data center business, $606 million. That was up more than 100%. Cloud customers there we know included AWS, Baidu, Oracle, IBM. And finally, that Q1 revenue guide, $2.9 billion plus or minus 2%. The street was at $2.5 billion. Brian, back to you. All right, Josh Lipton. Josh, thank you very much. Okay, certainly the valuation on this stock, someone has said hi. It's come down with the rest of the market, but you just heard him talking up gaming, talking up crypto. Anybody a buyer? If you've seen the market go down 10% and you've been short NVIDIA on valuation and you're doing this with your hands because this stock is going to get throttled, and they come out with a quarter where they smoke it on EPS, beat significantly on revenues, gross margins through the roof, you got to be scratching your head. So, in the old days, to quote, a, to quote somebody, this, they should have pre-announced this quarter three weeks ago. That's how good it was. Didn't do it. Stock's up. Should be up. Valuation Although be Although there's damned. 240 levels where it topped out before. I'm not sure you jump in and grab it away. I mean, and, and how much of this isn't already in the stock? I mean, people know that they're, they're in gaming. That, I mean, the crypto element of this, to be that definitive and to try to also put some reasonability around it I thought was very smart, but that may be a driver, but everything else that we heard, we knew these guys were crushing. It's, I, a, it's actually know. not a big driver, and I think they're not talking it up. They're basically saying it, it, it's... It's a part. Know, no, what, but what I'm saying is it's low single digits for their total revenue. What they're saying is it's going to provide upside when it's better than expected, but they're not guiding for it. So don't make this a crypto stock. Get in it for the data center up 21% quarter over quarter, 100% year over year. The, the, the AI, you know, those sorts of themes... Crypto is just kind of the cherry on top. It almost sounded, Dan, like she was warning off a little bit. Saying, Don't has, buy us yeah. because we're a crypto. We're, yeah, we got a little They've frosting. They've been routinely but that's not doing case. that over the last few quarters. It outperformed their expectations in the first half of 2017. It underperformed their expectations in the latter half of 2017. Here it is again in the first half, doing better in 18. All right. That's a look at NVIDIA. Still ahead. Do you want to protect your portfolio from all this volatility? Dan's got a way to do it. For close, not nothing, but close to nothing. He'll explain right after the break. It's it's small, but it's All right, welcome back. Well, you might be wondering, what is the best way to protect your long-term investments? And for that, we turn to the options market, a little segment that we like to call the more you know. And today, Dan breaking down what they call a collar strategy. Dan. Yeah, so let's talk about this, you know, relative to a stock that you may own that you really love and then you never want to sell. And you're in a period like now, it's particularly volatile and you're watching stocks move around and you see the potential for it to go lower. And let's talk about a collar strategy. This is against a long stock position. Let's use a 100 share unit. You would actually sell one out of the money call against that 100 shares long and you would use the proceeds to buy one out of the money put. What you're doing is you're collaring your stock. You're participating in some upside to a certain point, but you're giving up some of that upside for some potential downside protection, but you also have losses down to that put strike. Let's talk about it a little more here. The main reasons are basically what I just said, though. You would do this because you want to protect a long position. You want to keep that long position intact, but you want to protect it. You're willing to give up some potential upside for some potential downside protection. And the last reason we're doing this, we're selling a call and we're buying a put, is when options are expensive. You just don't want to buy put protection. That can be a drag against your performance. So let's go through some examples of why to do this. Let's use Amazon. It's a very widely held stock. It's actually one of the stocks that I think it seems like everybody in the market really loves here. But I first want to hit on a couple other big stocks. And this is Apple. We know this. The thing had been consolidating here and swoosh like that. 
down uh, 10%. Let's go over to Google. Same sort of thing. Had this big move after a long consolidation. Boom, down 14.5%. Okay, let's go to this one now, Amazon. All right, well, this stock obviously also consolidated. It ran up here. This 10% move looks so small on this chart because this stock is still up 15%. Google and Apple are each down on the year. Amazon is still up. So that may be one reason why you're long it. You want to play for some potential upside, but you want some potential downside protection because if this stock were to fill in back to where it started the year, you got some more downside protection. So let's go and let's talk about how we would collar Amazon. Today when the stock was trading at 13.7, you'd look out to March expiration. If you were long 100 shares, we're at 13.70, you'd sell one of the March 1,500 calls at $25, and you could use the proceeds to buy one of the March 1250 puts for $25. It costs you nothing. You're protected below 1250. All right. Well, Dan, thank you very much for that. Very informational. For more options action, you can check out the full show tomorrow at 5:30 p.m. Eastern Time. All right, up next, a final trade and your first move tomorrow. All right, welcome back to Fast Money. A quick programming note. Do not miss Carl Quintanilla's interview with Comcast Chairman and CEO Brian Roberts. They're coming to you all the way from Pyeongchang, South Korea, where the Olympics starts tomorrow, 10 a.m. right here. A big interview on CNBC. All right, time now for the final trade around the horn. First thing you do tomorrow, Guy Downing. First thing I do tomorrow, and thank you for being here all week, Brian. You are the man. All state insurance got banged up too much. Dan. Uh, I'm starting to pick it square on the long side. All right, Karen. Well, it's good enough for the power pitch. Good enough for final trade. Apple, if you're a little nervous, buy a little Friday, a little Monday. Conviction. Little Tuesday. Tim. Risky, but down 13% and way oversold, EEM. EEM. All right. Thanks for watching, Bell. You're going to need some guidance. And Kramer's got it for you. Mad Money begins right now. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager.